0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Daredevil, episode 13A, A Touch of Typhoid, covering a period of Daredevil from April 1988 to November
2: 1988. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am Adam Chapman, your Daredevil co-host.
0: And Adam, which issues are we talking about today?
2: So in particular, we're talking about Daredevil number 253 to 260 and Punisher number 10.
0: Yeah, so if you are following along with uh, these Daredevil episodes, uh, we are covering the Epic Collections, and this is Epic Collection number 13, called A Touch of Typhoid. We are splitting this down the middle, so we're going to talk about half of it this week and half of it next week. Uh, and then following that, after that, we'll jump right into into volume 14, which covers uh, some more of the Ann run. Um, now, Adam, the are these a favorite? Is this a favorite period of Daredevil for you?
2: I have no idea. Um, like I've read it multiple times, I'm still not sure how I would feel about it at times. Um, it's interesting, to say the least. I it's interesting when you said it's from 1988. I was like, man, I'm glad I wasn't a five year old flipping through these issues because no they are not for a five year old.
0: <laughs> they really aren't. There's some dark, heavy, and inappropriate stuff through these. I was uh, I was quite surprised because I think people. Um, I think people compare Daredevil to Spider-Man a lot, right? Because you know he's more on the ground level of New mm. York. He's a he's a solo character. He you know he swings through the city or whatever and has his rogues gallery. Deals with the kingpin. Um, but it's like Spider-Man, but on the the underground in the seedy underbelly where where terrible stuff happens. It's so different.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. Like yeah, a lot of bad stuff happened. I mean. It is, it is definitely Anna Senti writing her heart out and this is the stuff that matters to her and this is, there's certain political leanings that, you know, she's not hiding them yeah. um, in terms of how, you know, this this is probably the most political that Daredevil has ever been in terms of, uh, you know, how they kind of approach certain things. And with a character like Daredevil, you could do that easily because you are dealing with the law and what the law means at different times throughout, you know, the decades. And this is a very particular period in the, during the 80s and how people are feeling and the cynicism that was kind of in America at the time. Um, but yeah, she she definitely, you know, writes it on her sleeve, and it's it's very apparent where she's coming down on. Um, but it does kind of fit this, you know, in and around the character. Although I did feel like the first few issues of this of this particular volume, Matt feels odd, and like it's harder. If you think about how close this is to Born Again, Born Again was not that long ago. This is maybe a year and a half after Born Again, right. but the character feels far removed from there and much more confident. But then we start to, you know, break him down and, and and take him apart. So I feel like he's he starts to feel more like Matt as the run goes on, as even though he does some very uncharacteristic things, and that's interesting too. That at times you don't really like Matt here, like right. he's not a great guy, and that's kind of a bold move to make because for the most part. Matt had been a good guy there was periods in Frank Miller's when he did some you know shadier stuff in his relationships but you know for the most part he felt like a good guy or at least was driven by a moral good and here it's starting to feel a little murkier
0: but he's being
2: manipulated
0: though to do the bad he thing. he is
2: but he's he is definitely being manipulated but it's it's just hard because you know I, I, how how long does the manipulation really you know, stay with him, and you know it's just—it's just—it's hard to read at times. It's not like he hasn't done bad things in the past or in the future, but it's always difficult to read because it's your hero. You want to root for him. Yeah, uh, Spider-Man doesn't typically doesn't do bad things. Um, you know he screws up but he doesn't really do bad things through you know in any kind of intent whereas here we have a different focus but it's again Nana DeSenti is really trying to peel away at what masculinity was like in the 80s how mm-hmm. people manipulate each other how people treated women and sex um, you know it's a really interesting intricate way of looking at things and how she's trying to peel apart what society actually looked like and Typhoid Mary is fascinating as a character because you know she's able to weaponize sexuality in a way that you know, we hadn't really seen, I guess, because like even Electra, who's like a sexual character, she never used her sexuality to do anything. Right. Uh, she just happened to be sexy, happened to be a femme fatale. Whereas Typhoid Mary is completely different. Yep.
0: Yeah, and that's that's where the manipulation comes in. I think Typhoid Mary is an absolutely fascinating character, and that's definitely the highlight of these issues. Is her? I I loved the also the way that she was portrayed in the Daredevil Netflix series. I thought that was very mm. cool. Also um and and they play a lot with the same the same themes there you you mentioned the cynicism of the era in the eighties here. We're smack dab in the middle of the final chapter of the cold War in nineteen eighty eight uh you know <clears throat> the u s and Russia are stockpiling their their nuclear weapons and and this is uh what we we see this come out in a number of different ways in this volume as well and that's that's covering the politics of the era that's covering um the news and everything that's going on uh in the world so people who were reading this at the time would have been very very familiar with um just the 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 uneasiness and the anxiety that the world was feeling at the time because like you know, is Russia is not is Russia going to start a nuclear war or not? That kind of thing. So, and we get to feel a lot of it, and that that kind of drives a lot of the motivations, I think, of some of these characters in this book as
2: well. Absolutely.
0: Uh, okay, so right before we go on, I have some uh, some listener comments. We got a lot of comments about this volume, so I'm going to do some of the comments now. And I'll do some of the comments in the next episode. So we'll have a little bit to talk about. So I went over to um, Instagram and here's what people say on Instagram. Patrick says, after Miller's Born Again arc, it seemed that no one knew what to do with Daredevil. At the end of Born Again, Miller really set up Daredevil to be a totally different book than it was before. Matt Murdock was basically dead, and he wasn't playing the part of a blind man. He had Karen back, uh, and and no one really knew what to do with him. The book really lacked a vision for a year or two until Anne Nacenti came on. She reset re, she reset up the status quo with Daredevil as Murdoch, the blind, and a lawyer again. She sets up conflicts for Matt, like Foggy unknowingly willing, working for the Kingpin, and matt and uh or and set it up to pull it back down at the end of the typhoid mary saga yeah it's very true i think a lot mm. of this beginning part is kind of setting him back uh, on track he's building up his life again in order to tear it down and that's kind of what most writers will do is they'll position their hero on a high level in order to knock him off because that's that's interesting storytelling right
2: Absolutely. I mean that's yeah, that's a very classic trope, right? But uh, it feels like Daredevil goes through that more than most.
0: That's true. It's a he's constantly there's constantly this fall from grace going on.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Okay, yeah, uh, someone by the handle Cool Covers says I think Marvel should value more of this run, Nocenti and uh, JRJR J. and Williamson need more reprints. Uh, that is true. This these two epic collections that reprint the Nesenti issues came out fairly early in the in the epic collection run, and mm. and we still haven't got the beginning, nor have we got the end of Nesenti's run. We just have these two volumes right in the middle. Still missing uh, a bunch. Yeah. Um, S. D. Rum says huge Typhoid Mary fan. Nesenti's work is amazing, including the first four issues of Typhoid under Marvel Edge for mature readers. And those issues are collected in a book called Daredevil Typhoid's Kiss. That's right. A comic book, the comic book heel says, currently the best Daredevil epic for sure, this one, um, until they decide to put out the Miller, Bendis, Brubaker, Wade stuff. Mm. And uh, let's see, another one says, Guy Eccentric says, one of my top five epics. Uh, that's saying a lot there. Top five. Nacenti's run is very underrated, and this gives a good example. As for Mary, I appreciate Nasenti's efforts to bulk up the rogues gallery, but the devil connection was a bit weird. Maybe I missed something. <laughs> we'll get to that in uh, in our next episode. Not in this episode. Yeah. So I think that's all the comments we have for today, um, and we'll get to some more comments uh, next time we talk about the second half of this volume. But in the meantime, why don't we talk about this volume... Uh, what are the things we need to know about this period of daredevil before jumping into this volume?
2: All right. Um, well, Kingpin knows who Matt Murdock is, that he's daredevil. He's a little obsessed with it. Uh, and tearing him down during born again, uh, Matt Murdock theoretically lost everything. He lost his practice, his ability to practice law. Uh, his home was blown up, but now he is kind of recovered. He's on his feet. He's living with Karen page is now back in his life as his full-time girlfriend. They're living together relatively happy, at least at the beginning of this volume, he's running a, a free clinic, uh, to help people with legal aid um and that's basically where he is so he's got a new kind of uh supporting cast he's trying to help people there's this young child who was recently blinded uh so he's trying to help him and help his legal case uh which obviously has to involve the kingpin as well uh working behind the scenes and uh, i think the, and foggy nelson is you know working for a big firm and he's no longer you know kind of the little guy he's the big guy now
0: okay yeah i think that's pretty much all you need to know um yeah, the, the stuff about the shelter and, and Tyrone, the little blind boy plays heavy into these first few issues. Uh, and then they kind, of, uh, they kind of disappear and get sent to the sidelines. So it's only really these first few issues. Uh, and this is something that Nisenti has been building up since the beginning of her run, right?
2: Absolutely, and again, the whole idea of how you know Daredevil realizing he can not actually you know practice law, but maybe he can still use his legal expertise to help and coach others uh, to you know give them proper legal aid, so that he can still help and give back. So you know, it's very much in keeping with the character and trying to find a way, and it's actually a very inventive way for the writers to find a way to still have him doing what he's good at, but not the way he did it before. And he's having to accommodate, you know, not operating at the same level, not having any prestige, you know, operating at a very different level, but still being able to do what he loves.
0: Yeah. The first issue in this book is Daredevil number 253. It's called Merry Christmas Kingpin. And Daredevil takes down a couple of crooks on Christmas Eve that are just kind of running amok. Um, and in the background, Kingpin ponders how to destroy Matt Murdock. Now, one of the things that I liked about this issue is um, obviously it's a Christmas issue. I, I, I really enjoyed these Christmas issues. I We don't really get them, I think, in Marvel these days because... The way they structure their story arcs—it's like a, a year, kind of. They don't really follow the normal calendar year anymore. No, they don't. You could almost count on some, a few titles every single year having cool little Christmas episodes. And I remember especially the one in uh in Spider-Man where they get kicked out of their apartment. Um, mm-hmm. That's the that's the Todd McFarlane era and. Um, There's the Fantastic Four. There's the Fantastic Four story. Actually, that might have been in one of the holiday specials. But anyway, I like these, these Christmas ones. And this one is interesting because they really, I think, play with Scrooge, like Ebenezer Scrooge and Kingpin, like the parallels between those two characters. Um, and you know, Scrooge obviously has a change of heart at the end of that that book or that movie, and Kingpin does not. But it's still talking about the same sort of that that high, lofty position where they think that they're above everybody else. They're concerned with their own dealings and their wealth, and look down on people. And uh, and, and and Kingpin fits that
2: bill. It's interesting, actually, to bring up Scrooge. I was thinking more parallels with. Um... Uh, with the Grinch, Um, especially at the end where you have the Kingpin kind of summarizing everything they've lost, and instead of his heart growing bigger, he just gets smaller.
0: (laughs) He buckles down, yeah, right.
2: But it's interesting because you almost want to write it off as just kind of being this one-off, but so this this particular issue is the crux of everything that comes from this. Everything that with Typhoid Mary all comes from the kingpin really re- making the realization that in order to truly destroy Murdoch, because he thought he did it before, is that he really has to he has to grab his heart. He has to strike him right through the heart, and that's the only way he's ever going to win. Uh, that he's and I guess maybe he wants to be freed of his uh, his obsession and have it be done. Like it's interesting that you know he did everything that he thought he could do. Thought he destroyed the man. Thought he killed him, and it still wasn't enough. And so he's like what can I, what can I possibly do that's still left because otherwise he's always going to be haunted by the fact that he can't get rid of this foe. And so this is this is where he kind of launches into his his new assault I'm going to take apart his heart.
0: I love the parallel on page 16 where Kingpin is trying to swat a fly with a barbell. This fly is buzzing around his head and bothering him. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, Kingpin can deal with huge organizations. He can do deal with massive things like underground crime. Because he is a monster force as well. Monster forces can attack monster forces, but they are not good at taking care of tiny little problems, and that's what Daredevil is to him—it uh, just buzzing around and causing causing an annoyance. Uh, I liked that. Uh, there, this a, there's interesting writing in this. Nasenti uses no narration throughout this entire issue. Um, except for the very beginning little dialogue boxes to set the scene. Mm -hmm. But once we pass that, everything is done. Oh, I guess there's a little bit um, introducing Daredevil on page eight. But everything after that is uh, done through words and through talking and thinking. And even like scene changes, we don't get any like later in Kingpin's office or anything like that or meanwhile, or we don't get any of that kind of stuff. Um, it just goes from scene to scene to scene. It feels very much like a movie in that sense, where it's just like mm. one thing ends and it goes right on to the next thing. Uh, I thought that was very interesting, and it's not something that she does in the other issues. So this is definitely uh, specific to the storytelling
2: here. Yeah, and it wouldn't have been common to the period either. I mean, yeah. this is where this is the period of narration boxes. So it definitely makes the issue stand out. It's curious why it's this particular issue. Um, but uh, I mean, I guess, so much of the rest of it, she really has to use context and yep. really use it more strongly to, really, because a lot of things will be happening without anyone act, any, without there being a simple way to verbalize it or even thought bubble it. Whereas here, it's a lot simpler, and you can kind of, the, and the key changes or the scene changes are so drastic that again, yep. you can do that pretty easily without there being too much handholding for the reader. But it is still an interesting thing to point out.
0: There are a couple of devices, uh, visual devices, that are used to change the scene. Like, if you go to page 22, uh, there's the scene where 8-Ball, the, the, the kid, gives his skateboard to, um, what's her name, Darla? Yeah. And uh, and then the very bottom panel, we have a scene change right to Kingpin sitting at his boardroom table, but the panel is smaller and inset. Mm. And so that yes. is to indicate a scene change instead of having a word box
2: yeah it, it is also interesting that um uh kingpin doesn't want to talk about christmas
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like ebenezer scrooge
2: yeah he even makes his just,
0: guy work on christmas just like he does with bob cratchit
2: yeah um uh, i don't really like the wild boys um found them as the villains here to be very like eh, okay um and also, didn't really. I guess the story with Eight with Ball was all right. Eight 8-Ball's a weird character kind of floats in A bunch of the kids are. And I, I think they're, There's more often than not, they're just mouthpieces for internalizing maybe thoughts that Anna Senti was having. They're very political, usually, or very, very cynical. And I guess maybe that's why she uses. Just, kids who should be optimistic to be really be the cynical ones but again there's so much cynicism in this volume you feel like you need a bath afterwards like there's just <laughs> everything is is everything's gross and disgusting and i guess that's the point and it's it's funny too because you hear about you know the new york of the 70s and 80s which is obviously not the new york that exists now yeah in terms of crime and corruption that kind of stuff but here it's just it's it's like a different world
0: well you say the cynicism and stuff but eight ball really learns a learn something here like he gives he up his skateboard to darla I mean, a very. I, i'm thinking moment.
2: more yeah i'm thinking more in like later issues too but like he definitely starts really, and like even even the kid even darla it was like i'm gonna have to steal that that i'm like whoa like yeah that's yep. instead of being like oh i really wish i had that you're immediately making the jump to i should steal that i was like whoa that's a big jump
0: yeah and darla later on when darla stumbles across matt and mary together i i think yeah there's there's a lot going on here that will that really jades these children we can see that they come up from from a like bad upbringing and have a very um very jaded look at at the way the world works but they're friends with daredevil and they want to help him like they're the youth of tomorrow so they're they are they they want to make the world a better place in a sense as well, but they understand how awful
2: it is at the same time. What's interesting as well about Daredevil is that, you know, his open relationship with the police almost seems like so crazy. Like like here, especially, like he's—they're just letting him do stuff. Like, okay, like, and we kind of seen it in, in, like, even Frank Miller's version of Daredevil. There was more of a cop presence as well. He definitely was having, you know, uh, discussions with the police, etc. It's just so weird to see because in the same era, you have Spider-Man like hunted by police, but you have Daredevil just chilling with them and, and basically being like, their Batman.
0: I want to point out the, the the last three panels of this issue, and then we can go on to the next thing. Kingpin sitting in his limousine. He decides that he's going to attack Murdoch in a different way, and then there's this panhandler at the very end, <laughs> reaching into the the limo, and he says, "Merry Christmas, Mister. Got a buck? Hey, man, it's Christmas for heaven's sake. A quarter? Uh, hey, buddy, a dime? <laughs> it's kind of a weird way to end this. It is. But it's a contrast between the the powerful, rich elite, and the and you know, and the down and out and there was a song in that was uh, made famous in 1932 by Bing Crosby called Brother Can You Spare a Dime which I'm sure this last panel yes. is referencing here because he says buddy and dime in the same sentence and that song was all about a man who was trying to live the American dream of you know Um, his own business, his own house, his family, whatever, being independently wealthy and, and whatever, and then it never happens and he loses everything and now he's forced to panhandle. And that became an anthem. It was written before the Great Depression, but it became an anthem for people in the Great Depression um, because, you know, so many people lost so much during that time. And that is a major theme that Anne Nascente plays with throughout her run here, is the, the people who are not able to achieve that American dream, the people who are in the gutter, who, who society casts off and forgets about. And that's exactly what, what we're seeing here with, in, with Kingpin in these last three panels, kingpin doesn't acknowledge this guy at all he doesn't speak to him he doesn't give him any money he doesn't even say go away he just pretends that he doesn't exist
2: well let's be honest he probably had the man killed right afterwards
0: (laughs) yes possible
2: that's why there's not a fourth panel he's dead now
0: yeah right Okay, let's keep on going over to number 254. Do you want to take this one, Adam?
2: Uh, I will. Just one last thing about 253. I did okay. like the juxtaposition, especially the way that it's in the epic collection because you have the cover right next to you know the first opening page. And I like that it's Merry Christmas Daredevil and then it's Merry Christmas Kingpin. It's just a nice little... It's just visually the way it pops on for us. It wouldn't have popped this way, obviously, for someone picking up the issue because you know they wouldn't have had the, the two pages juxtaposition to each other. But I just like that.
0: We have the juxtaposition of opening it up uh, and seeing yeah. the first page would would say "Merry Christmas, Kingpin" in that sense.
2: That's true. So let's go on to two fifty four. So this is uh, this is the big one. You know, this is the first appearance of Typhoid Mary, um, and even like the cover is very striking. Uh, immediately, kind of sets up. You know this mysterious woman as well as like the fires, the flames. It's interesting to me going back to this and seeing just how fully realized as a character, she was right from the get go. Oh yeah. In terms of, in terms of her powers, the, the pyrokinetic, the, you know, it's all there. Um, and you know, just, she comes fully realized onto the page. She didn't need, further kind of refinements to kind of develop who she was going to be. Uh, she's not like a black cat who took a lot of revisions to kind of feel like the black cat we ended up getting later, whereas Typhoid Mary explodes under the page the way she's meant to be.
0: Yeah. And every person who's dealt with Typhoid Mary since then has been very, very faithful to this this original interpretation right here, this
2: ri- original iteration. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's the most 80s design you can imagine for a female villain, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah. I love it. The, the
0: huge hair. the like the hairspray, the big the big 80s punk rock kind of look
2: like the amount of work it would take to 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 get her look down and then go back to being Mary Walker is mind boggling.
0: Yeah, I know. There's one scene where, um, you know, she she is Mary and then she fluffs up her hair and all of a sudden it looks like this. And she says, oh, it's just good to fluff up my hair. It's like, no, that takes more work than that, I'm pretty sure.
2: Just <laughs> the magic of comics. That's right. So, I mean, right from the beginning, like, you have her, again, wearing, like, you know, armored shoulder pads. Like, it's kind of nuts. One arm is covered, one arm isn't. She's got the, you know, double blades. Uh, she's got uh, scabbards by her side. She's got the, the ripped fishnets. Like, it's, if you could if you could close your eyes and imagine a more 80s female villain, I don't think you could come up with one. Um <laughs> but again like right from the beginning like she's seducing others she's, there's you know this this criminal and she kind of turns her to her, him to her side and um, you know, already he's walking around killing people for her and he almost doesn't even know why he's doing it. He tries to fight against her and she's like, nope, this isn't going to happen. Let's go. Let's do this. So, I mean, again, weaponizing sexuality right from the beginning. Uh, we have Jared will save uh, a man from almost killing himself. He's trying to, you know, help uh, Tyrone very roughly. But again, he was topped by the roughest person possible, Stick. Um, so there's a reason for him to act like that. Uh, We have Kingpin in the most ridiculous-looking leisure wear uh, playing a tennis or a squash. I don't know what he's supposed to be playing, but it's great. Um, And again, this is really all about kind of setting up where we're going to go from here. we got Matt worrying about uh, Tyrone. You have Kingpin hearing about this typhoid Mary who's cutting up you know all these criminals, and so he's like, well, maybe I can turn her to my side. So he gets a dossier on her, which is incredibly ludicrously detailed, but okay. Yeah. Um, and he's you know going to try and hire this this woman to work for him to you know do exactly what he said in the last issue: strike at Mur- uh, Murdoch's heart, use her you know multiple personalities to make him fall in love with her, and then you know really put the gut punch on. Him. And that's basically the issue.
0: I really like the beginning with the suicide jumper. Uh, it's just kind of one of those things. It's like at the begin- beginning of a movie, you have a little tease or a little, like a dramatic situation where Daredevil mm. or the hero has to step in in order for you to uh, to learn about the hero's power set, in order to learn about the hero's moral values and that kind of thing. And this is what this is. This also is a guy who ha- has lost or hasn't um, achieved the American dream, so he's killing himself. Like, it's a perfect example of Nocenti's views here.
2: Mm-hmm. Well and again throughout this issue where we talk about that the, the garbage the smell of garbage is everywhere because there's a garbage strike and right. you know the entire city is starting to smell like garbage and everyone feels like garbage like, you get this claustrophobic feeling throughout the issue that not only when like Typhoid Mary is on the uh, on the scene everything's hotter um, but you also have this the stench of garbage this, this sense of everything being dirty. Now the
0: garbage strike was something that happened in all of the books, right? In all of the Marvel it? Universe books. Did I can't remember. I, I can't remember either. But I seem to recall right before Inferno, um, other instances of this garbage strike. Maybe it was in New Mutants, or maybe it was in Spider-Man. I don't remember. Um, but yes, yeah, that's that was very familiar from for me when I was reading these here, and I tried to Google to see if there was an actual real garbage strike in New York around this time, but I couldn't find anything. No eh? Yeah. Uh, I really like the, how all of the word balloons for Typhoid are in pink. That really gives a very striking uh, and visual difference to her character. And it plays up. They're not consistent with this because her word balloons are not pink in every issue. But in some of the issues where we're mm-hmm. dealing with Mary and Typhoid talking to each other, Typhoid's speech bubbles are in pink. And Mary's are in white, so you can see that there are two different voices talking. And I like that, that duality.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Um, actually, I just quickly looked up. So in 1981, there was a big New York uh, uh, trash uh, strike. It was 17 days. Um, and previous to that, the Great Garbage Strike of 1968. So, I mean, yeah, the most recent the one would have been 81.
0: 80- <laughs> so. But even that's a little far away from, like, it wouldn't have been current events at the time. People would have for sure remembered it. Like, I remember a big garbage strike that happened here in Vancouver several years ago but i don't know if that would have been inspiration to put that into into comic book form i'm not sure you never know yeah, i don't know <laughs> yep yeah. so on page 32 where mary is um talking to that that this guy that she has uh, seduced she's she, she says he says back off you treat me like you're the man and i'm some girl And that is the role reversal that Nascentius is is trying to to put on display here. Like the Typhoid is definitely taking on the dominance and the characteristics typically associated with with male power and putting it in a female form. Mm Mm-hmm and yeah and you mentioned the kingpin looking at the uh typhoid mary's like i guess it's a video or something he's watching of her origin story <laughs> very very detailed yeah. Um, absolutely. I was surprised that they explained everything kind of right off the bat uh, because there's a lot of mystery to this character. and i was I would have thought that they would have let that play out a little bit more, especially with the split personality part
2: of it. Um, I feel like maybe I wonder how much like I'd be curious how much of her came fully formed and how much of it, you know, maybe talk to editors about like how much they should portray right away. Like this is a really interesting character. we're going be we're gonna have a storyline for her. She's not just gonna be a done and one. I'm curious, you know, what the conversation might have been with you know Ralph Macchio and others to kind of say like, you know, how much should we really be divulging about this character right away? And do we need to kind of front load it so that people understand the facets? Because if you only slowly kind of peel the onion in terms of what we're getting here. Is there a way to do that naturally in the story? Is there a way to way, that wouldn't be unnatural or ruin the flow? Like This is kind of a nice way of quickly giving you everything you need to know about this brand-new character and why she's going to do the things that she does, and then you just kind of get to go with it. I like, guess there's so, no- yep. You know what I mean? You just hit yep. the ground running. Yeah, it's a two, two page info dump, which to be honest, these days actually seems relatively brief. <laughs> and then you go right into, you know, this is who the character is and you can really portray, you know do everything you need because all all of that setup was already done. So yep. I think there's, you know, I, I agree with you. you. They really could have portrayed the mystery longer, but I think it was almost more interesting to have the reader know everything so that you can see just how badly Matt Murdock is going to screw up
0: yeah, I understand yeah that make you make a good point there. I, I think I agree with that here. and and I think also Kingpin, wouldn't go into a um a relationship with somebody like like this without fully knowing all about that person. He doesn't like to be surprised
2: for sure. And uh, he's obviously been screwed with some of his assassins in the past, so it yeah. makes sense he's going to do a lot of homework. Um, it's interesting too how later you know he ends up in a relationship with Mary as well. I'm getting yeah. a little ahead of ourselves, but it's fascinating to see. And this is you know going to be something that lasts. I mean, I don't know. Like obviously the the, the next charitable epic that come out is the Last Rights, I believe, right? Yeah. That's that's the next one? Yep. So have you, have you read any of those stories before? I have not. Okay. Because it's in, uh, Chichester puts a really neat bow on everything that happens with Mary and, um, and, about, and in that storyline. And it's really well done. So uh, it's nice to kind of reacquaint myself with the early days of Mary And as we go through these volumes, kind of the middle days, uh, before we eventually get to kind of the ending of her being a recurring character, at least for a while, when Chichester kind of pushes her off the board. Not in a mean way, and and I don't think he ever, I think he was just wrapping up a a loose end.
0: That's cool. I can't wait to get to that. That sounds really interesting.
2: It's definitely is Matt having to confront himself and do something that's a little icky for the better good. And again, that's something that Daredevil always does. (laughs) Right.
0: Okay, moving on to page, uh, or sorry, issue number two fifty-five. This one's called Temptation, and this issue I found uh, quite interesting, even though it's basically all talking heads. Uh, this is the issue of the trial, mm. the, the Kelco trial. Foggy Nelson is representing Kelco, who is accused of um toxic waste dumping which led to the blindness of this little boy who was playing in a place and came across this radioactive sludge that blinded him and um, it's not Matt. What's this? Guy, what's the guy's name here? The lawyer that's representing uh, Tyrone and his family. Oh God,
2: I can't forget. It. I can't remember his name. I forgot
0: to write it down, so I can't remember. But anyway, he comes from the free from the the free aid clinic that that Matt set up, and Matt is using this guy as basically his mouthpiece. He wants to represent Tyrone because he really feels attached to Tyrone, gives her the similarities of their blindness. Uh, but he's lost his his uh, status as a lawyer. He's not allowed to, to practice law right now. So he's a shadow lawyer. He's speaking through this guy, coaching him, telling him what to say. And what I find really interesting is Matt, I mean, foggy picks up on that instantly. He's like, that's exactly mm-hmm. what Matt would say. This is definitely Matt. I, uh, and this is this is kind of foggy's big reentry into to being a lawyer as well, right? so this is his first big case and now he didn't expect to go up against his best friend all of a sudden, like right away so i thought that was a really oh, sure. really cool play we don't get to see a whole lot of foggy in this ish, in this uh, volume so it's nice to to get those moments with him to see where he's at
2: for sure and uh, sorry the uh the uh the lawyer who does right end up representing tyrone his name is david david
0: right. um, yeah yeah that's right
2: this issue is obviously you know as you said it's a lot of talking heads but we get a lot of important stuff because we get matt and uh, mary's first kind of crossing the line yep and such an uncomfortable way to do it with poor Tyrone in the room, and you have Matt just kind of giving in to these desires that he can't really understand what what is happening or why he's doing this. Yeah, and he's just kind of, and it's it's interesting to me that we don't like when all this is happening. We don't really have any internal. A monologue or any thought process whenever Matt does any of these things. So whenever he's being kind of manipulated and he's really close to Mary, we don't even get to see inside his mind, um, which I think is an interesting perspective Like we see him talking usually before he meets Mary or after he meets Mary. But typically when he's with Mary, we're not actually seeing his thought process on how tormented he is. So it makes it an extra level of uncomfortable.
0: I think that there might not be any thoughts in his head at the time. And this brings me to the question of what exactly are Mary's powers? Now we know that she has the split personality and they make a big deal of saying that even when she is Mary or when she's typhoid, she even has a completely different uh, scent. Her heartbeat has a different rhythm. Like she is literally a different person. Uh, Or kind of not really, literally a different person, but it's it's like so that Daredevil can't tell them apart. I mean, so the Daredevil thinks that they are different people, right? Yeah. Uh, But she also has this telekinesis; she can move objects with her mind. That seems kind of out of left field. But then there's also this aspect of like, does she have some mental powers? Can she control people's thoughts? At first, when she she influenced the uh, the guy that she uses as her her stooge in the in the first issue, uh, she scratches him on the cheek, and I thought maybe there is some sort of poison that she mm. she puts in that that gets, takes over his mind or something like that. But that doesn't happen with Matt, nor does it happen with Kingpin or Kingpin's bodyguard later on in this in this volume. What exactly? How exactly does she control people? And if she does control people. Um, that would explain maybe why we don't have any thought balloons from Matt during this sex section, because he actually doesn't have thoughts of his own while True. he's under um, his inf- her influence.
2: Yeah, so she, I mean, she has, like, a psionic hypnosis, um, and she can, like, kind of implant mental suggestions into others. Yeah. Um, they, I mean eventually and this is later much later um there's going to be a third mary personality um that was used in i think spectacular spider-man at some point um that was bloody mary um so that there ended up being kind of mary typhoid mary and bloody mary so typhoid ended up kind of being the the middle one in terms of uh, how powerful she was yeah and i i I don't know if you remember this but you know eventually typhoid ends up becoming part of uh, uh the avengers initiative project um for a while, she was a, a very mysterious character known as Mutant Zero. And at the time, people thought it might have been Jean Grey because of her hair, but ended, she ended up being Typhoid Mary.
0: Huh. No, I don't. Re- I didn't
2: read any of that stuff. That's cool. Well, I just ruined it if you ever go back and you're like, <laughs> oh, who's this mysterious character? Well, that jerk Adam already told me. Well, maybe
0: I'll forget it by that point.
2: <laughs> uh,
0: anything else you want to say about this issue? Oh, I know what I want to say. Um, The Kingpin tries to buy off a lot of the, the, um, the jury... Like he says, he that, well,
2: that that's that that hasn't been done yet.
0: I guess he's making plans to do that. He's he has said though yeah. that he has orchestrated all of the evidence and the everything so that Matt will fail because he knows that Matt's on one side. Absolutely. And since he owns Kelco, uh, he is, you know, invested in winning. So he has orchestrated a whole bunch of stuff. I guess it's not the jury that he's paid off, but it's the, you know, the, it's the lawyers and the defendants or whatever the, everybody presenting. He's yeah. Paid well, off. at
2: the, yeah. I mean, at the end of this, at the end of this issue, he does say like, buy one of them tonight, like buy one of the jury jurors tonight. So that is unanimous. So it, we're, we're setting up something that's about to happen, but, you know, he's definitely going to make this go his way no matter what. Which leads us into issue 256, which has one of the weirdest first pages, <laughs> just because you have Daredevil kind of standing in front of you in this kind of weird pose. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. It's just, again, a weird kind of... It does... Show that Daredevil, especially at this time, is very much a street-level guy that everyone's used to seeing around the neighborhood, and like not just up, up jumping up across buildings, but actually at street level. The fact that people don't even really look at him when he's standing there, right. you know, talking to a guy who's doing three-card Monty like he's just <laughs> part of the firmament. They're right, just used yeah. to him being around.
0: That is true. It, it, all throughout this, these issues, people are constantly saying, "Hey, look, there's Daredevil. Daredevil's one of the good guys." Hi, Daredevil. Like they're talking to him, like they're they're oh, buddies. Sure. And everybody knows him. That is interesting. Um, I I think I like this opening because Daredevil has been letting Mary or letting t- Typhoid get a, get away with uh, you know taking down these gambling rings and everything like she's actually doing good work in a bad way and he's <clears throat> he's struggling with his place in the whole system. He doesn't know exactly where he stands, and he's second-guessing himself. And so I think as a way of compensation, he takes out this three-card Monty guy, which is, like, no threat. Sure, he's, (laughs) he's hustling people for a little bit of cash, but it's, like, not a huge deal. And Daredevil's, like, busting him on it. He's like, Daredevil, you've got bigger things to worry about here, but he's, like doesn't he's trying to convince himself i think that he's doing the right thing in a lot of circumstances where he's really not focusing his attention in the right place
2: for sure and then in this issue we have um you know one of the first big moments where mary and typhoid are are at odds and we have mary get home getting home and she starts you know wiping the makeup off and then she you know is fluffing her hair and she realizes that something's wrong she's you know she's she's realizing that she looks different that she looks like that that woman she's trying to like talk to herself Trying to like write notes to herself. Um, and then the typhoid memory personality takes over. So this is the first time where we really get to see that dichotomy and how they are really at odds and fighting with each other.
0: It's interesting reading this because I've been reading Moon Knight at the same time, like the classic <laughs> Moon Knight. And Moon Knight has you know his three three or four personalities as well. Um, But it's such a different way of portraying it because these ones, they don't know that each other exists, but for Moon Knight, they do know each other exists and he can easily switch between the four of them and it's not a huge deal. Um, But with Mary, yeah, it's like there's a a power struggle between the two forces to see who's in control. For sure.
2: And then we have Matt Murdock visiting Foggy Nelson, which it's weird that a lot of the stuff that you and I have read for the Daredevil epics we barely had Foggy in the book yeah really uh, like you know that Foggy Nelson is this Im- incredibly important supporting character with Daredevil and you have the most of the stuff we've read he's barely been around or has just not been the, the the Foggy Nelson you'd expect and that's what we get here as well like he's with Gloriana who is a character we've already seen die in a future volume which is weird too <laughs> yes that's uh, great um and then you know he <laughs> Murdoch shows up and like he you know browbeats Foggy for not you know checking who's basically paying his checks Uh, Gloriana, I really like that Ascenti let Gloriana have more agency here and really take him to task for being a bit of a dick, um, which I appreciated. I mean, again, she feels very different in a good way than she did under Frank Miller's uh, pen when she was just kind of politely shoved into Foggy Nelson's arms uh, in Born Again, whereas this feels much more organic and feels like she's a real person uh, who is strong, uh, which again makes it sadder that they eventually killed her off in the way that they did. Um, We have Typhoid Mary finally uh, uh, delivering the bribe to the juror, and basically saying this is all sewn up, no, you know, no issues, um, and then we have a protracted sequence of mary and Daredevil fighting each other in the sewers, um, and you know he's just not really able to to take her out. And then and at, near the end of that fight, she kind of reverts back to Mary and runs away. And Daredevil is kind of confused as to what's going on. He visits the juror. He's able to convince her, you know, not to. Uh, well, we don't even know at this point if he convinced her or not to not take the bribe. We have this juxtaposition of him and typhoid getting home, and you know what they're doing, and Matt kind of being a uh, again very dickish to karen like she's not given a lot of room here in these in these issues but they're getting farther and farther away from each other as he's getting more and more under type Mary's spell and then when the issue ends the you know the juror ended up not taking the bribe as well as foggy nelson is now uh quitting and kingpin's having a bad day
0: <laughs> yeah uh i love seeing kingpin in these issues it's like some uh the way they portray him here is um uh, what is he doing? Oh no, he's just in court, in this issue is me. But like, he's either like practicing practicing his archery, or he's playing squash, or you know, it's <laughs> uh, lifting weights. Oh yeah, doing stuff that uh, he doesn't usually usually do. He's way more recreational in this than sitting behind his desk. <laughs> um. I really like the, I really like the the end here where we have kind of the parallel storytelling. After they have their big battle mm-hmm. in the sewer, they both climb into their apartment window and take a shower, and they're like thinking about the same thing, and it's Mary. Who's talking? But and, and Mary and Matt have the same fear of typhoid, so mm. they are. It's like you can understand why they are uh, why they're together, why they're a couple, because they have sort of a shared um, traumatic experience with typhoid that uh, that Matt can't share with Karen, although they don't know that each other have that 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 thing. It's it's kind of a weird setup. Um, I really like it. I think this this whole um i don't know this whole affair if you want to call it an affair that matt is having is quite um it's creepy it's a little gross and but it's it's compelling at the same time it's like i want to know why he's doing what he's doing and how he's going to eventually mess it all up and what karen's reaction is going to be
2: yeah
0: it's good drama good soap opera absolutely uh, if you're following along in the epic, uh, right after this issue, there's a pinup in Marvel Fanfare from Marvel Fanfare number 43 by Brian Murray, and I really like this pinup. I just like the uh, the um, off center horizon and the daredevil in the in the shadows just taking a leap off this ledge i think it's really nice just the mood of the Mm -hmm. of the city and such absolutely just before we get to daredevil 257 we're going to tackle punisher number 10 and because this is a two-part crossover between punisher and daredevil and so i've invited my punisher host uh, chris marshall to join us hi chris hey guys it's great to be here thanks for having me Awesome. So let's start with this Punisher issue. Chris, can you, since you're the Punisher host, can you give us a recap?
1: Yeah. So uh, pretty much, uh, it's we're we're in New York City, and there is a bunch of overdoses going on with pills. Uh, people are popping these pills, and there is an overdose. And, and Frank is kind of getting in on this and uh, kind of pinpointing where exactly this is happening. And he kind of breaks it down into. Uh, he's going after a, a, a drug lord uh, that he's. That it's kind of interesting. This dude working out in his apartment. This dude is. I don't know, Curtis. He's he's a uh, he's a pretty strong dude hanging out in his underwear lifting weights, <laughs> and um, and he's really <laughs> bothering the woman who lives next door. Well, yeah, because he's like he's dropping like two hundred pound weights <laughs> just on the
0: floor of his apartment. I don't think that that's safe.
1: Yeah, this is not safe for kids. You know, when you when you turn the page, and even when he's uh, doing crunches, it looks like he's got no underwear on, which is pretty scary. <laughs> uh, but it looks like, you know, this guy is the culprit drugging everybody. And, uh, and even uh, Daredevil is getting wind of this, saying uh, he's on TV and, and Frank sees him on TV. You know, the, the reporters are asking uh, Daredevil, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, and he's like, you know, if you're doing this, you know, I'm addressing everyone who has... I'm addressing anyone who has been placing uh, cyanide-laced medicines in Queens. Please stop doing this and turn yourself in. It's like, yeah, whatever, dude. Uh, and and <laughs> I don't think that Daredevil would be on TV anyway. I, I hope Adam can address that. Uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, he's a man of the people, I guess. Um, yeah, that's so weird. It's, <laughs> it's Yeah, it's kind of odd, you know. And what's even odder is that Frank... You know, he's kind of pinpoint this location. He goes to the Jehovah Witnesses to see if he can, you know, if somebody in the neighborhood can can point him towards, you know, what's going on with the, the drug uh, problems here. So I thought that that actually was a great idea because Jehovah, Jehovah Witnesses,
0: they know everybody. They go door to door and talk everybody. to every single person. However, what is ridiculous about this is that they would actually – you know know the person who is behind this like oh, oh that guy he's just a weirdo i think you should check him out that's basically what they say
1: yeah yeah and it
0: happens to be the guy so good idea not a great resolution however frank should consult the
1: jw's uh, all the time because they they know everybody <laughs> yeah so frank kind of gets wind uh, from the jehovah's witness guy that uh you know he should go take a look at the um where this strong guy is living and she, he poses a, as a plumber. And this is kind of funny. He poses as a plumber, but then the woman actually hires him to do plumbing work <laughs> yeah. um, because this, her sink is actually, uh, busted up. So I thought that was kind of a, a comedic moment there that he <laughs> actually has has work to do. And he actually solves the problem too. He actually does it. He does. So he's, you know, he's very he's uh, a resourceful. Yep. You know, yeah, <laughs> a handyman in, in more ways than one. And
0: then he pulls his large um, gun out
1: of his toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but not before he stops uh the woman from uh from you know doing her mouthwash which you know who does mouthwash in the middle of the day when a strange man is in your apartment so <laughs> i don't know what's on her mind there but uh that, that was another comedic moment but then he goes after uh this uh dude a, a really good fight ensues actually and uh he ends up you know i i love the scene on uh 364 of uh of the Punisher epic volume that, uh, you know, way he jumps out the window. I thought, uh, the art there is just really, really cool. You can actually hear him come out of, uh, of the window. Yeah. The
0: choreography is just great in all, in all of this. It's, and the following daredevil great. fight too.
1: Yeah. So I was just going to mention that. So Frank, um, catches up with him and he's just ready to throw them, throw this guy over the roof where daredevil shows up. And, uh, he throws his uh, his stick right at uh, Frank, um, dropping the guy down to the ground, and they have a little talk. Um, you know, even even Daredevil says, "I think we should have had this discussion years ago." Um, we know what that is in reference to those issues. Um, and sure enough, uh, they have a really nice fight on the rooftop. It seems like Frank and and uh, Matt are always fighting on rooftops, and uh, so. But what's what's classic also is. The guy gets up, this, and he's got a gun, and, and Daredevil just takes care of him with, with one swing, it seems, uh, and just knocks him down. And uh, Daredevil takes him away, and uh, Frank goes back to the house, gets his toolbox, and uh, he basically saves her life, the woman's life. And uh, he's got a black eye for it, and it says, uh, see Daredevil on, at 257 on sale now. Uh, for another side of the story, which I think was a really ingenious way to do things. Yeah. Uh, having a, uh, looking at two two sides of the coin kind of thing, with, which is uh, really, really great to see. So there's actually a third uh, part to this, which I will tease and get to you uh, after Adam does his recap of Daredevil 257. Okay. Adam, do you want to
0: take first thoughts? You want to give your uh, first thoughts of this issue?
2: Well, what I really like about it is that it casts uh, Punisher in a different light. That we actually see him more as a detective than just a blunt instrument, which we often see more of. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of nice to see him actually kind of figuring things out, try to you know track down this guy posing as a federal agent. Like he's he's doing more than just what we typically see Punisher do, which is just kind of go after the bad guys. This is him actually doing detective work to actually make it happen.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I like how he weeds out the fact that. Um, uh, when, when he finds out that he, it's probably a disgruntled employee, it's like he leads out all these people mm-hmm. for different reasons. He the, he even eliminates women because it's probably not going to be a woman. <laughs> um, all of that <laughs> kind of stuff to find out that it's this is this guy. So, yeah, I think uh, I like that. I think it's really neat.
2: As for like Daredevil, again, it's it's interesting. It's weird that he's on TV, but otherwise, he just kind of shows up. And uh, I feel like the Daredevil issue maybe does a which we'll get into in a minute. Maybe does a better job kind of showing that there's going to be you know these two characters are going to be intertwined in some way. Whereas here, it just kind of feels like Daredevil just kind of shows up out of nowhere. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, the the other issue is definitely better laid out in terms of showing what Frank is doing, kind of as. At the same time as what Daredevil's doing.
2: But it is interesting because each one, I mean, there's obviously, it's not just the other side of the story. I feel like you kind of need both to really get the full sense of everything that's going on because there's certain Daredevil things which don't come across the same in his own book. Um, and the same thing with Punisher. There's some Punisher stuff which doesn't come across the same way in his own. You know, when you have the different books, they actually go a little bit further into the other character than I would have expected. Hmm, yeah. And like, even, even the fight sequence between well, and again, we'll, I guess we'll get to it, but the fight sequence between Daredevil and Punisher reads very differently in Punisher because you get a lot of the talking and a lot of the moralizing, which you would expect Daredevil to to do to, to Frank. And yet when you have in the actual Daredevil comic, you get a lot less of that.
1: I was just going to say, do you think, Adam, that uh, that Anasetti and Mike Barron talked about that in their meetings? Uh, that's a really good
2: question. Um, I, I, I would imagine they would have had to. It just feels yeah. weird because I feel like Nisenti often is heavy on dialogue and heavy on moralizing and heavy on like the the parts of Daredevil that Daredevil is very holier than that with Punisher. And I would have thought of, of either writer, I thought she would have gone harder on, on uh, kind of eulogizing or like, you know, doing a lot of soliloquies or a lot of talking at Frank. I would have expected that more from her than Barron.
1: Huh. Interesting.
0: Well, I have an answer to your question because I actually did ask Mike Barron, um, if they talked about this issue. And he said that, no, he just wrote this one issue, left it in the cliffhanger, and then handed it over to her to finish it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was just, yeah, it was very interesting. So the fact that Anne Nacenti decided to make the Daredevil issue um, sort of the opposite side of things was her idea, because Mike Barron just set this up. Interesting. Hmm. Well, why don't we move over to Daredevil number 257, um, Adam, can you uh, walk us through this one?
2: I mean, we have the other side, so although it's interesting because we have, you know, Punisher kind of doing the same type of thing we saw in the other one—the idea that he wants to find this aspirin killer. Then we do spend more time with Daredevil and kind of understanding there's a lot more of what's going on in Daredevil's world at this point compared to. I mean, I haven't read the other Punisher comics at the time, but I feel like his was much more kind of. It could have been read almost in any context and any you know sequence of issues whereas the daredevil is very of the time you have uh typhoid mary or mary i should say and uh, kingpin and he has his own kind of weird feelings about mary and uh, he's using mary obviously to get at daredevil but at the same time he wants mary for himself it's really weird and twisted um we have daredevil in plain clothes just doing an investigation at, at a factory which is ludicrous <laughs> so we have we have Daredevil doing an investigation which doesn't really make a lot of sense that they would allow him in but he's trying to investigate and find out you know who the guy is who's been lacing these drugs or who might have been laid off and then we see a lot more of understanding i guess the perspective of the uh, guy who was, uh, you know, lacing everything uh, with the drugs, In fact that he was, you know, a laid-off worker, he's really kind of irritated and upset, so it definitely humanizes him a bit more, although he's still a monster. Don't worry, we're not humanizing him too much. Uh, again, a lot more with Typhoid Mary dealing with her, and then we uh, pick up uh, with Punisher about to kill a guy, which it's weird to read not having read the Punisher book because you know that this guy is there, you know that this, you know, this drug pusher's there, and the next time you see him, Punisher already has him over his head. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, what happened?
0: Mm, yeah, but that's because we are getting things from Daredevil's perspective.
2: Correct. Yeah. And then so then we have Daredevil versus Punisher. And again, it's interesting because there's a lot of uh, narration here from the dealer. Uh, he's commenting on what's happening and his perspective as these two guys are going at it. Uh, but you don't actually hear w- any words that Daredevil and Punisher are actually saying to each other, which is interesting. And I guess maybe part of it was that she didn't have to worry about replicating the exact dialogue beats and since she was able to vaguely have it from the sense of, from the point of view of this guy um, who's watching them just beat each other up. And it goes on a lot longer than in the Punisher book too. It like, does. In the Punisher yeah. book, it's relatively brief, but here it's extremely drawn out and really thrilling. Like John Amita Jr. really knows how to show these guys absolutely laying into each other.
0: I was going to make the note that there are um, several pages through in both of these books where the dialogue is so sparse. Uh, and mm. they just let uh, actually Senti really likes to write dialogue during the fight scene so that's not an, uh, quite an accurate comment but Mike Baron in the Mike in the Punisher issue uh, the whole fight scene is almost wordless it's not very mm. much going on there at all
2: mm-hmm. and uh, and that's and, and what I liked about it is because you have it from the perspective of The drug dealer is that, you know, he's but he's about to, you know, shoot them and he just gets a belly club to the head and he doesn't remember anything after that, which is a really nice way of not having to kind of show the ending of that whole sequence. Right. Like it's interesting, like I, I really am curious what people would have felt uh if they hadn't read the other issue. Uh if they just got this, if they would have even noticed that they missed anything or just been like, Well, that's the story
1: they told. Hmm. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, if you were to read this, you wouldn't know what happens with with Punisher. You know, yeah. How do they leave things? How do, how do they leave it? You know, that's the thing. So,
2: especially after how knockdown, drag out the fight was.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're
0: right. I guess you have to buy the other issue.
2: Yeah, and then with the rest of the issue, we have more with uh, Kingpin and Typhoid Mary. Uh, also with with Matt and Mary because he's doing you know he's he's cheating on his girl at this point you know he's he's doing a lot of bad things he should be doing um, and then one one thing I thought felt about the um, the way in which the drug dealer was illustrated he reminded me visually a little bit of the bullet character that was used in Daredevil during this period so at first I had to kind of do a, a double check to make sure it wasn't that guy and it was just this other dude
0: I feel like he's yeah. a he's a stereotype of the eighties right there with his mustache Very and his much long so. hair. <laughs> yeah.
2: And what I like about this is that be, be tying in the idea of this, this drug and this corporation, I mean, this is kind of what uh, Matt Murdock was doing at the time. He was helping people. He was, you know, helping. He wasn't a, a lawyer. He wasn't, um, he had been disbarred, but he was providing kind of legal assistance with people. And that's kind of what where he was here, trying to help people. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he does want to help others. And this is definitely kind of drives that forth here.
1: Well, I can just say that um, if you want a third perspective of this, which is kind of cool, in the 2012 uh, series of Punisher number seven, there is uh, a couple of cops that witness the fight, and they give like their quick synopsis of what's going on when they see Daredevil and, and Frank fight. It's kind of like a flashback. So, uh, I think it was I think it was Greg Rucka's run. Um, that, uh, That's right, that, that yeah, so that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, so some things do get used over and over and over again. So, mm-hmm.
0: so in the back um, of the Punisher Epic Collection, there is an afterword from Ralph Macchio, and uh, he talks a little bit about this uh Alfred Coppersmith character in the, the Punisher Daredevil crossover. Um, he says. Mike Barron, who scripted uh, the issue of Punisher, and Anne Nocenti, who wrote the following Daredevil issue, are both from very different places on the political spectrum. I happened to have been the editor on Daredevil on that Daredevil issue, and I was, it was truly amazed. I was truly amazed at how professional both writers were. Please go back and reread each of those outstanding stories, and I defy you to decide which writer is more attuned to the conservative or liberal point of view. Um, So I Hmm. thought that was interesting, too, because, yeah, would you say that Daredevil is a liberal character and Punisher is a conservative character?
2: Uh, I mean, generally, I would say yes. I would say yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have
0: Mike Barron, who is a very conservative guy, uh, writing The Punisher and doing a good job. And I would say not um, pushing his own political agenda. Um, with with the Daredevil dialogue. And then Anna Senti does the same thing uh, with the Punisher and definitely writes in Punisher's voice, um, even though she doesn't agree with uh, with those political points of view, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, a, a big part of that, to be honest, I mean, not, not to take anything away from the obviously the, the high degree of skill that both writers have, um, but you do have, I mean, Punisher and Daredevil have very clear like their their moral systems generally speaking are like granite like you kind of know what they are like they're not characters who are very mutable like they are they have a very specific perspective so i feel like they're they're very yeah they're they're very absolute so in terms of a writing perspective you don't have to get into a you know a a sense of greys with these characters you just kind of have to understand that absolutism and i think that might be actually easier to write than writing someone who's a little bit more uh shades of gray
0: You also have the, like, it's obvious that Daredevil is acting as the antagonist in the Punisher issue, and Punisher is acting as the antagonist in the Daredevil issue, even though it's the exact same scene.
2: Mm -hmm. One thing I, 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 we didn't mention uh, some of the stuff, but with uh, the Petrashio art, um, I do like that uh, Punisher just lies in his bed at night, fully garbed in his Punisher gear with his gun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Like he is not messing around. He's like, I am the Punisher. This is who I am. I, this is how I sleep. Twenty four seven. He is. <laughs> He's always
0: right. on. Oh yeah. Um, okay. One last note. Um, the the Punisher episode, is, uh, the Punisher issue is titled "The Creep," and the Daredevil issue is titled "The Bully." And throughout both of these issues, they they kind of like they play with these titles like who is actually the creep punisher calls uh the bodybuilder the creep and the 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 lady in the hall calls the punisher the creep Mm. and daredevil thinks the punisher is being the bully but then the bully is also um the, the corporation is the bully to the bodybuilder and like there's just there's so much um wordplay going on between the titles of these two issues
2: oh for sure well and even you have the idea of um uh, Mary and Typhoid Mary. She says, "You know, I won't let you bully me." Um, yeah. So there's this, an extra layer too, right? Like everyone in here is somehow dealing with that.
0: Yeah, um, I was surprised that the the that this was such a, an important issue for Typhoid Mary in in this team up. Usually, they save the big stuff for um, you know when it's when they're not doing the the crossovers and stuff. But this is the issue where I think Mary really kind of interacts with her other self on a more more obvious
2: level true and another thing that does strike me is that you know considering the time frame i mean this is a pretty mature two comics um i mean you're dealing with you know people being poisoned and uh, even, like, the first page of the Punisher book where you have the woman gets this zum- zumitrin for pain relief, gets home, and then put some, uh, pops some and then just kind of starts to die. Like, that's pretty... And then their kid comes in, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. Like, it, um, it's a it's very visceral. It, it's meant to evoke a reaction. But just considering the time, I'm surprised.
0: Yeah, totally.
2: And, like, even with uh, the, uh, the creep in the Punisher uh, series um just the the typeface with the blood kind of dripping down that's pretty intense for the time period as well
0: yeah and that's all over the punisher books i know you haven't been in our conversation for the punisher but that's uh definitely something that you see in
2: in in every punisher issue interesting um the one thing that it's interesting so these issues are obviously dealing with you know pretty serious subject matter and they take themselves seriously um but the first uh, i guess the second page of the daredevil issue um so you have you know the shot of you know of frank you know with the gun looking a little static it's actually not the most the most vibrant shot of the punisher as he's just <laughs> em- emptying his clip and but the uh the sound effects really are are kind of almost too funny in the way that they're kind of larger than life like the pacal the butter, like it almost seems too loud and then you have the bully in like yellow and it just seems very i don't know Saturday afternoon but it's well, not
0: i swear and i can't i can't place my finger on it but i swear that that splash page is a mock up or a parody of an old like 1930s gangster movie poster
2: okay that would make sense yeah
0: i can't place my finger on it but it's so familiar so if any okay. of you out there are listening and can can uh, tell me what that is, if if I'm right, uh, please write in and let me know.
2: <laughs> I, I do hope that someone says, is able to find that.
0: Thanks, Chris, for joining us for these two issues. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you on another Punisher episode. Thanks. It was great to be here. Adam, do you want to take us through issue number 258?
2: Okay, so 258 is uh, it's an inventory story. So here we kind of uh, we take a break from the regular story by Innocenti to tell a very different story. Um, it's so interesting to me because not only is it very different because... You know, you have a different writer. You have Fabian Nicieza is writing it. You also have um, as different an artist as you can imagine from the John Romita Jr. of this time, which is Ron Lim, and it feels like a very different Ron Lim than I'm ever used to seeing. So
0: like, different.
2: I'm used. I'm used to Ron Lim's characters, like obviously usually on Silver Surfer, etc., looking a certain way, and this has felt so different.
0: And I wonder if that's the influence of Jim Sanders as the inker, doing his uh, putting a lot of his own into the pencils. Um, this is also like uh, how long is this is 1988 is is ron Lim fairly new still to comics at the time
2: that's the thing i was wondering that too I, I didn't actually have a chance to double check that but i i actually really like it like that first page like there's so much um, expressiveness and so much detail yeah um but it's still animated like he's st- like it's not too realistic like it's really well done um i uh i had a, a brief as i was reading it today i was like I don't think Fabian Nicieza has ever talked about this. So I tweeted out him a few things, just being like, you know, what, what inspired this story? And he said that, you know, his his b- very, very Fabian, uh, he said his brain inspired him to come up with something that he thought sounded interesting. So I'm like, all right, cool. Um, so <laughs> I asked him, you know, I, which is, a, it's, a, it's a very Fabian thing to say, which, I mean, if you, if you ever listen to him in interviews, like, that's just his style, uh, so I said, you know, I enjoyed the recurring use of the title throughout. It's called I Heard the Jungle Breathe uh, and how you use Bengal, who's the character, the villain that's used here. I said, what was it like coming in to do a fill in Daredevil in the midst of Anne's run? Any issues from the Comics Code Authority on the portrayal of Vietnam and the violence presented and at times alluded to? Uh, He said it was totally cool to get a chance to do that inventory issue, especially since Ron was going to draw it. So it does make me wonder where Ron kind of was in his career at this point. Um, And he says, I got to use a character and the storyline I'd created while in high school in a real comic. And he also said the Comics Code Authority had absolutely no issues with the subject matter at all. Nice. I was curious yeah. about that, because it, it's such an—I mean, it's it, it is the textbook definition of an inventory story. It it could be slotted in almost anywhere. It's a very neat and tidy done done in one daredevil issue. It doesn't really even involve Matt Murdock really operating as Matt Murdock. It's just a daredevil issue, so it doesn't matter what Matt Murdock's really going through in his life or what his status quo is. It's as long as he's daredevil, it kind of still works. It obviously needed to take place in this period where Vietnam was still relatively recent, right? Um, and it's all about this. You know, this this child who, you know, was you know, almost killed in Vietnam and he's you know, coming to avenge the death of all these people that he grew up with uh, by targeting the people who were on the chopper that you know, took off and basically trying to hunt them all down. Very simple but extremely well done and you know you, the, the character doesn't really speak um so it gives an an, an added sense of of tension it's, yeah. it's very tense because you don't know what the character's thinking or saying you just know that they're kind of this unrelenting force coming to you know exact vengeance
0: now i'm not surprised that the comic code authority didn't have any issues because marvel was publishing a lot of war stuff at this time I and mean, we had punisher War Journal. So. we had the nam we had semper fee like there are a bunch of different uh, war titles and this follows right in line with that it's not it's not too graphic uh, it shows you just enough that you need to know in order to get the, the gravity of the situation uh, and because it's an inventory story, I don't think that uh, like you, you your question was what, how what, it, what was it like trying to slot it into the middle of nocenti's run here uh, Based on the artwork, I wonder if this story was actually written maybe a couple of years earlier. And mm. that's why Ron Lim's art looks the way it does is because it was done years ago and he was still new and didn't have his style in place yet. And it's just been sitting in a warehouse, uh, filing cabinet waiting to be used. And now, you know, JRJR has a double issue coming up. They need an extra month in order for him to get ahead. So they pull that out of the filing cabinet and, uh, and run it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's possible. The only other thing I can think of is that, you know, Niciasse didn't join staff until, what, 85? So, I mean, yeah, it could have been in there for a little while, but his first published story was until 87. And I don't think he'd written anything at that point.
0: Right. I mean, he wasn't on the writing staff, um, but he was still employed by Marvel. Because he was working he was, in uh,
2: marketing, right? So
0: I wonder if maybe just as freelance, he wrote something and sold it to Marvel, and they stuck it away in, in an inventory, uh, the, the inventory drawer. I'm not sure. Yeah, that'd be interesting to talk more about, to Nacieza about this specifically.
2: Yeah, because it, it looks like, I mean, Ron Lim, uh, I mean, I'm taking this from Wikipedia, so obviously it could be very wrong. But it looks like he wasn't uh, really discovered by Marvel until a 1987 comic convention. Um, so, I mean, oh, but yeah. again, he started he started penciling Silver Surfer in 88. So this is right around that period.
0: That's true, and his pencilling in Silver Surfer was very much his own style. like uh, mm. he, he already
2: had that kind of going.
0: yeah, I don't know. I, I'm maybe it, w- it is just the influence of Jim Sanders as the inker that makes could it be different. many things, right
2: it's, it's It's always interesting to me to look at stuff where it's again, such an early period in you know both both careers of the, you know both the creators um, is such an early story for both of them. It's interesting to see how their early work looks, both I mean in terms yeah. of the writing and in the art. Oh, yeah, I got it's a good what... story though. I liked it.
0: Yeah, I like it too. I felt maybe a little heavy handed in some of the, the just the political context
2: uh, of Hold on, hold on. You thought that Nisieza was heavy-handed in a political context in the middle of an Senti book?
0: <laughs> no, well, um, <laughs> yes. I guess, I think he was, um, Nisieza was trying to say so much in one issue, whereas the mm. can spread out her political leanings throughout the entire thing. But, but he, like, we have, um, like, in the first two pages of this whole book, Talking about the 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 American soldiers going in and just decimating a Vietnamese village, like killing everybody, blowing everything up. Uh, that's just in the first two pages, and he's definitely got some things to say about that. And then talking, you know, more about the, the PTSD from the soldiers and how that affects people, and the way that this this kid has grown up, um, being the only survivor and devoted his life to hunting these these guys down and um there's just there's a lot packed into one issue uh and they even have time for a couple of good spars between bengal this character bengal and uh daredevil
2: it's interesting that they call him bengal but he's only ever referred to it once and daredevil says something at the very end about you know oh they'll take care of bengal and i'm like how do you know his name right yeah he never said it that's true you just came up with it i mean unless daredevil knew the cover of his own comic like that's the only way he's gonna know
0: on the last page of this issue on page 167 in this epic the 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 look of shock on Bengal's face that's a ron lim mm. face right there uh that's probably that's the most ron lim i can i mean I, you can see it in a, a lot of his poses still and sometimes in the faces you can see ron a, a classic ron lim style face but that one really strikes me as being ron lim and i maybe it's just cuz it looks like noran rad <laughs> yeah um uh, but my question here at the end here is why does Daredevil take Bengal to Willie's apartment and say, "Look at his face, look and remember look like, why does he say that? And obviously it has uh... it has the, um, the 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 effect that Daredevil wants because he sees the guy and I mean, I think you're supposed to infer that he remembers that this guy is a blind guy on the helicopter and couldn't have possibly been one of the guys that was forcing him out of the helicopter as a kid. Um, but how would daredevil make that connection like i don't understand yeah
2: i mean i guess it in the text that you know like i mean he tells them a lot about what happened in vietnam and on that thing so maybe he's just hoping that the the kid will remember you know his 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 face and that he'll know yeah maybe i don't know it, it's a big it's it's a big leap but i mean it's comics it's not that big a leap yeah i guess so
0: it just didn't it didn't seem like as satisfying of an ending as i would have hoped uh, especially with the um... with the tragedy from this this guy this character he bengal gets no closure he is he's out for revenge and I guess we assume that he just goes off and kills the other people that he is going to kill he just spared Willie because he realized Willie was innocent in it but he goes off and continues his quest or well, whatever I, I mean Daredevil
2: and this guy obviously
0: think they think he's dead nobody no death
2: yeah I mean I get what you're saying that the idea that you know usually when there's no body they're still alive but the fact that the characters so obviously think that he's dead and Daredevil's like you know, don't worry about it. Let's call the police. Let's have them pick up Bengal's body. But the art doesn't support what he's saying. So it is a weird ending. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think we ever see him again. So it probably doesn't matter. <laughs>
0: Too bad. It's kind of interesting to know that this was a character that Nisiesa uh, uh, created in high school that he just brought into it now. That's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, like I would never would have known that. Like that's, that's one of those, It's it's interesting, the things you can do on Twitter, right? And just talk to people and, yeah. and find out little tidbits that you never would have known if you hadn't asked.
0: It's great. Okay, so now we're going to move on to page number 259, The Children Are Watching You. And this issue leads directly into our kind of big conclusion issue. And I'm glad they put the, uh, the, the, the inventory issue where they did, because it was kind of a natural breaking point. Uh, if this really was put there because of um, the fact that Romita needed an extra month to do this double-sized 260, then they could have put it after this issue, but by putting it before, it it makes these next two issues flow really, really well. So that was that's nice. Uh, in this that's issue, yeah. um, the children are watching you. Butch, one of these other kids, he's the kid who has a star on his helmet. He witnesses a kidnapping, a girl being sold. Uh, we're dealing with human trafficking now, child trafficking, and... Uh, I think there's some implications that we're also dealing with a child a child porn ring in some sort of w- capacity as mm-hmm. well, but they don't kind of explicitly say that uh maybe that's just a little too much for comic books um however, we've talked about another volume where they deal with a child porn ring as well further on down the ri- down the line in Chichester's run was it Chichester or was it after chichester
2: uh oh no I can't remember I can't it remember feels either. like Chichester.
0: But uh, so they're kind of, uh, we're dealing with the same thing here. And Butch goes to tell Daredevil about this. And so he and Karen, and Karen r- really feels invested in this this case as well. So they go together to find the missing children. Um, Karen feels this because of her history in Born Again, where she was lured into the uh into the adult film industry and um really got uh into a bad mental state because of it so she's kind of picked her life up now since then but seeing kids used in this way is you know it's of course she's going to feel like she's got to do something about it
2: yeah it's nice to see them team up and at the same time you know they're teaming up to you know, try and find this girl. You have Typhoid Mary. First of all, she's now in more like she's definitely in a relationship with the kingpin. Um, he's been being manipulated. He can't stand anyone touching her. But him, uh, he's getting possessive. But you know, she still feels like she's in control. She tries to look up a listing of uh, foes, which made me laugh because apparently they're all heavies and they're all like losers. But okay, uh, I feel like she got like a. I feel like she got like an alphabetical list except for the Wild Boys, but uh, right or whatever they're, whatever they're called. But well played, yeah. Um, yeah, but everyone else is just kind of a loser. But anyway, so she basically starts putting up a, t- a team because she's decided, you know, she's she wants to really hurt Daredevil. She's she's tired of waiting. She wants to put the hurt on him, and then she wants to be able to swoop in. Um, so she's going to put together a team to do this. Where it means gathering together uh, Bushwhacker, uh, Bullet Ammo. I don't remember Ammo at all, actually, but Bullet I definitely do. And I always really like that character, so it's just didn't see him used. Um, but you know, putting together a team to kind of put together uh, this massive beatdown on Daredevil.
0: Yeah. Uh, we can sense that something is building. This is very much a building type of issue. Uh, and the things are leading up to a big finale. And Typhoid has a change in heart in this one. Um, not a change in heart, but her she decides to tackle Matt in a different direction because Kingpin has been saying, go for the emotional part because I've tried doing something physical. I've tried taking away the physical possessions and material possessions from him. That doesn't work. We need to attack his brain and his heart. But Mary tried that, and it's not going as fast as she wants it to. So she's like, you know, I'm just going to take him out. Um, also, she's doing that because she knows that Mary is actually really for real falling for Matt. And Mary's trying to take control. So Typhoid's like, I'm going to take yeah, out gosh. Matt out of the picture before Mary has dominance over over their brain. So uh, very interesting to see how things are playing out here and how she, how Typhoid is coming to these conclusions in her
2: mind Mm -hmm. it's a great it's a great setup issue that's for sure i mean it it gets all the pieces in place for um it's weird looking at 260 and being like why was this a giant size spectacular like (laughs) you know they just kind of picked a random issue and decided to to put everything in it like you would never see that these days it's true just do that
0: yeah it's not like it's a quarter century issue or anything like that um it's not the anniversary of Daredevil's debut or, or or what. It's, yeah, it's issue number 260. But they wanted a big splash. Um, okay, so hold on. Before we go on to that issue, though, when she goes to talk to Bullet, Bullet's son is in an apartment, and he's preparing his apartment, like, outfitting his apartment like a fallout shelter <laughs> because yeah. he's afraid of the nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war that's looming over the world at this time and so he's got his uh his um vacuum sealed meals and, <laughs> and you know he's boarded up all the windows and such and i think that's just such an interesting thing the the cold war paranoia that this little kid is facing and all of the adults are telling him it's fine. And then Mary comes in and says, yeah, you know what, kid? You're right to be paranoid. And he's like, I knew it! All of the adults were lying to me. <laughs> um, yeah, just I thought that was a nice... Uh, um, I don't know if Anne's trying to, like, poke fun at at people or, or a certain group of people or, or whatever through this kid or something, but uh, it's definitely something that was on people's minds at the time. Absolutely. Okay, the big one. Issue number 260 is called Vital Signs. And... This whole issue is one you know brutal battle that is just uh, all of the uh, all of the members of typhoid's new team attacking daredevil one at a time first it's bullet then it's bushwhacker then it's ammo and then it's the wild boys and then mary kind of gets the finishing touch and throughout this issue we see the just the attacks the the unrelenting attacks of these villains taking its toll on Daredevil and he's slowly, slowly getting beaten and beaten till at the very end he just can't handle it. It reminds me very much of when Morlin attacks Peter Parker in the Straczynski run and JRJR mm. JR is the artist on that too. But it's I got the same feeling. It's like, wow this guy is just like He's just unrelenting and pummeling our hero. Um, you know, it, it's just a non-stop force, and he can't get a get a break or have a chance to breathe or recoup. So of course, yeah, they're just—he's just going down. And I felt that way with Daredevil here
2: interesting um i had a very different uh I actually found well first of all the fact that they went through, they went through very much like uh, the original amazing spider-man annual yeah uh, where spider-man slowly fights everyone in the system sinister- no, hold on hold on hold on the big bat, uh the final boss boss like getting hit by someone and that and that person basically just leaving off and letting that person do it um, so you felt like you had different stages almost almost like a video game um and then the other thought is that this felt like a very condensed of what we would see years later in batman nightfall where you had Batman having to go slowly up against his all of his, ro- his rogues in rapid succession getting worn down by all of them, one just to- totally decimates him. So it reminded me maybe more of those two uh, in compar- comparison, but I can see where you're coming from as well in terms of this unrelenting foe. I think the fact that you had multiple different enemies made me go in different areas as opposed to just one force um, and it's interesting, interesting too to see how messed up Daredevil gets um, and how no one cares <laughs> like he sees people all throughout New York and everyone's just kind of not, again, not caring, not really being helpful. It's interesting too, because it's in the, the middle of like these two giant marches that are happening. Um, it's, again, I talked before before about how Matt Murdock didn't always feel like Matt Murdock, but the beginning of this issue was actually the most Matt Murdock he's felt in the entire run thus far in this, in this epic, um, because you have him making jokes and having kind of fun time with Karen. And I'm like, this is the character I remember. And then we're not going to see that for a long time
0: it's interesting you bring that up because i was going to make that note too i think he's making these jokes again because he's overcompensating he's <clears throat> especially making these jokes when he's around karen he's trying so hard to act different so that she doesn't suspect that anything's going on with him and mary and he's it's it's specific to those times i really think because
2: he didn't seem, he didn't seem to care before
0: Nope, he didn't but- care, but now I think he it's he's gotten so serious. He's been trying to hide it, but now they're doing things out in the open and stuff and so now when he's with with uh, Karen again, he feels like he <clears throat> needs to Act a different way to cover up what he's doing, or something like it's a it's something that he's doing because he's nervous. You brought up Spider-Man Annual Number One as uh, something that this reminded you of, and I'm I'm like this is absolutely paying homage to the Spider-Man Annual Number One, not just because of the 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 you know the all of these foes attacking in succession but also every time you had a foe you had a huge splash page and in some cases a double page splash page just like steve ditko did in that annual with all of the villains as well uh every every single Mm -hmm. one of these characters got that and in that original um in that annual you had uh, a bunch of pointless cameos of other characters that popped up that didn't have any bearing on the story stan just wanted to promote their books we have a pointless cameo in this issue as well It's the human torch well it's
2: uh, yes in and of itself it does feel pointless but given the the following issue it feels oh, less pointless
0: absolutely i know that for sure but in just in the context of this issue he comes in has a look around and then he leaves he doesn't talk to daredevil or help him out or, or see him or anything um so it does daredevil's a
2: pro he'll be fine
0: <laughs> oh yeah that's right he does see him but yeah he he leaves him up to his own And so he doesn't get involved, and that's exactly what happens in that Spider-Man annual as well. Uh, I did like some of the hallucinations Matt was having having uh, toward the end of this issue. One was with his dad, and Mm. I can't remember. Sometimes they portray his dad as being a real jerk and like really abusing Matt as a kid and stuff other times they portray him as being really loving and it's like he is doing the boxing because he loves his son and doesn't know how else to care for him I don't know which is the actual real or what is supposed to be the real interpretation of his dad but this one they make him come off as the jerky character
2: uh yeah, I mean I think he's he's both. I mean he has been both, and um, I think also when the story dictates. it, I mean obviously he this is all based on Matt's memory or right. his hallucinations anyway. So yes. I wouldn't I wouldn't you know put much stock in it anyway. It's just at this point this is what he's seeing.
0: Yeah that's right. Um I also like on the the page before we see uh, a hallucination of Daredevil's rogues gallery. And it includes Kingpin and Typhoid and Electra and um, and Bullseye and also Gladiator, who's like a Silver Age villain of uh, Daredevils, who I don't think gets a whole lot of love these days at <laughs> at all.
2: He shows up periodically, but never usually as as Guardia, as as Gladiator. Usually just as Melvin Potter, but he, you know he still makes his appearances.
0: I just don't think that I would consider him to be one of the the characters I would stick in
2: Daredevil's Rogues Gallery. But maybe up to, uh, up to this point, we up don't really this, have anybody else. Yeah, up to this point, I absolutely would. Um, especially because, again, Frank Miller brought him back and used him some more. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. So, I mean, you Oh, I if guess that's true. I yeah. mean, really, like, this is kind of a greatest hits of Miller, right? I mean, Miller did such great work with Kingpin, Gladi- Gladiator, or Melvin, uh, Electro, and Bullseye. And then in here, you also have Typhoid as kind of the newcomer. Uh, so, that makes sense.
0: I guess so. I guess you're right. Yeah, I forgot about Miller's, uh, inclusion of, of gladiator in there. Um, yep. So that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, overall, do you think this was a good, um, final battle, I guess, like a big, cause they've been really building all of these, I don't know, what did we just talk about eight or nine issues to this point? Do you feel, feel like it was
2: warranted? Um, I do, because what what I thought was interesting about it is it didn't just feel like it was daredevil der- der- getting to this point, but it was typhoid. Like, typhoid needed to do this for herself. Um, she needed to do this to stay typhoid and not let Mary win. Yeah. So it felt like we, we'd had scraps between these two characters, and they were so sexually charged, and it was typhoid, you know, was playing with him, but now she can't play with him anymore because it's getting too personal. It's getting too close for her. So she really has to get rid of him so that she can stay who she is and not let Mary win. Um, So I thought in that respect, it really worked well because it wasn't just, the hero, you know, building up to their big battle, um, it was really the villain building build to theirs, and what she needed to do for her own preservation. So in that respect, I thought it was really well done. It's interesting that Typhoid herself barely fights him, but because she gets everyone else soften him up, which I thought again made sense for the character. So yeah, maybe you'd like to have a really big battle, a uh, final battle between Typhoid and, and Matt, but it actually meant more that she got everyone else to do it because she couldn't do it her own. She could barely barely do the final kind of dumping them off the bridge. On her own to kind of squelch the Mary personality.
0: Maybe it's the fact that I read these at an accelerated pace. These are pretty quick reads, you can read these issues Mm. pretty fast. And I just felt, though, that this came really, really quickly. And maybe if I had been reading this only one issue every month, and this had built up over the past nine months, then this would feel different. But I just felt like, boy, we're just getting started with the with the relationship between Matt and Mary, and all of a sudden, this is happening. I expected it maybe further down the road. Hmm.
2: It would be fascinating uh, as an experiment to get an epic and just read one issue from it a month, just get the, get the experience, because were not meant to be consumed this way you know they're meant to be consumed once a month and every once every sometimes once every two weeks depending on the books but it's just so interesting that we're so used to now consuming it at a pace like you said and we are you know losing some of the effects because we don't have that lingering feeling of what's going to happen next issue because you know you're going to get it right away uh, so it's just an interesting experiment to do we would buy an epic and only, and only read an issue a month and uh it would last a long time
0: <laughs> it sure would yeah um, I love these last two pages with the uh, vertical, skinny vertical panels where we see Matt falling and this single tear rolls down Typhoid's face uh, to symbolize, I think, um, Mary's reaction to what's going on here. I thought it should have been on the other side, like not the painted side of Mary's face. Uh, or Typhoid's face, I should say. Mm. But uh, but yeah, we have it here d- dripping off of her chin in the end here and Matt falling to what we th- are to assume is going to be his death. Uh, but yeah, really nice way to end. We're going to end our episode right here on this cliffhanger, and I think this is a great place to stop because the next the next half of this epic goes in a very different direction.
2: Yeah, I can't go any more different than this. <laughs>
0: But that's all we have for today. So I encourage you to uh, read up the rest of this epic if you haven't already and join us next week when we resume and talk about the rest of these issues. Um, thanks, Adam, for joining us again. Check out his podcast, Comics sh- comic Shenanigans. comic um, com. Is that right?
2: That's right. But we can just find this on iTunes. It's probably easier. Just look it up under Comic Shenanigans.
0: And you can search for the Epic Marvel Podcast on social media and find us there and join our Epic Collection group on Facebook so we can uh, talk all about Epic Collections with you. We will totally enjoy you being part of our group. And that's all for this time. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next time.
2: Bye-bye.